we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back, everyone. We took a little break last week just to decompress, but we're back and better than ever with a real treat for today's episode. I've been thinking about and studying the data broker ecosystem for the past year or so, and one of the experts whose work I keep coming back to again and again is Justin Sherman, CEO of Global Cyber Strategies and Senior Fellow at the Duke University Sanford School of Public Policies Data Brokerage Research Lab. Those are just a couple of the hats that Justin wears, but he is really one of the leading experts in the field of data brokers. So we sat down to chat about what this industry looks like, current regulations for data brokers at the federal, state, and international levels, and the stakes at hand of this industry for regular digital citizens, including you and me. Hope you enjoy and let us know what you think of the episode. Alrighty, welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind here today with Justin Sherman. Thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. So I want to get right into it because today we're talking about a very interesting and important topic on the subject of data brokers and the sort of ad tech ecosystem. And this is something that you think are really an expert on. Uh, Definitely, I have used a lot of your reporting and uh, and testimony in my work before. So I am really excited to hear your thoughts on the current landscape. But before we jump right in. I want to get a sense of how you got into tech policy and sort of what you're working on at the moment. Sure. And, and thanks again for uh, having me on. I So I'll go in reverse order. So right now I wear uh, a few different hats. Um, I founded and run Global Cyber Strategies, which is a DC tech policy consulting firm, so do work for nonprofit and private and public sector clients on cybersecurity, privacy, tech risk, that kind of thing. I also uh, have an appointment at Duke at the Sanford School of Public Policy. Uh, That is where, for the last three or so years, I have uh, also run this research program that we have at Duke on data brokers and all things data brokers all day. So um, we'll, we'll certainly, I know, dive into that. And then I have some other hats as well. I do a lot of writing and, and edit for lawfare and things like that. So it, it's kind of a, you know, for me, I found it to be a fun mix of things to be able to sort of do teaching and also do academic research and also do some more hands-on work, whether that's with, you know, privacy startups or, or what have you. Um, on the consulting side. So I got into tech policy sort of by accident, uh, which I think is probably how a lot of people uh, and certainly a lot of of my colleagues would answer that question. 
I've so I've always been interested in in technology, but also social issues, politics, policy, that kind of thing. And so, um, in my undergraduate, studied both computer science and political science. And when I first started doing that in my head, it was sort of two separate tracks, right? These were just different, unrelated things that I was interested in. And then the more I did both of those things, the more I got into uh, topics like privacy, cybersecurity, and particularly um, towards the end of, of you know my undergraduate and when I got out of college and uh, before I went to grad school and things like that, I just realized that personally did I did not like coding at all and much more uh, enjoyed policy, writing, research, engaging with folks about um, these issues. And so, yeah, it's been a mixed sense of think tank work and some government stuff and, and private sector things. But um, like I said, the the interesting blend I have now, I think, is not too atypical in this space and is sort of a nice thing in a very emerging field to be able to create different kinds of careers that maybe are not as typical in other areas. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like the atypical zigzaggy path is actually somewhat typical <laughs> in yeah. tech policy. So uh, no, that's great. So now to jump in, I want to start at sort of the basic building block of what is a data broker and how does this industry sort of work on a, on a basic level? The question of how to define a data broker, we could spend uh, hours um, on, on that uh, alone, but data brokers are companies that are generally involved in the business of collecting and aggregating data so that they can sell it and otherwise monetize it. And so um, this is a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. It's also a multi-billion dollar industry globally. The UK has a large data broker market. India has a large unregulated multi-billion dollar data broker market. China has an emerging data broker market. The list goes on. So, but what's kind of interesting, um, you know, to my initial point about this industry is that it's a little bit distinct from how we often think about other companies using data. So Uber, to give a random example, right, might collect my location information for a variety of reasons, but first and foremost, so that it knows where to send the car to pick me up. It knows, for instance, if the car randomly veers to the side of the road while we're driving, then maybe there's a safety issue or something, right? Um, and we can come up with all kinds of other examples. And that's kind of the primary business purpose for collecting it. There might be others, but that's kind of the main one. And there's a lot of internal data use going on. Data brokers are very different because they make their money by selling that information. So uh, in some cases, that's literally providing Excel spreadsheets full of uh, people's information. Sometimes that's providing services based off the information. So analysis of people's phone location movements, um, you know, looking at trends in purchases in certain areas or things like that. And all to say, you know, what kind of data, tons of kinds of data, financial data, health data, mental health data, location data. Um, and so all of that is part of this, this ecosystem where, again, the primary objective is not necessarily using it internally, but more so around the sale of the data itself. Awesome. And to break this down, even further, how does this 
interact with the ad tech ecosystem as a whole and companies whose business models are um, really in data collection. I think traditionally, this gets back to your definition point, traditionally when people, whether that's journalists or legislators, talk about data brokers, they've done so in reference to third-party companies. So it's, uh, whether that's a credit reporting agency like Experian that does actually have some federal regulation, or whether it's a third-party company selling all of our real-time phone location data that no one's ever heard of that has no regulation. Um, and so there's, you know, there's that, there's that range. Um, but there are a lot of first party companies involved in this ecosystem. And by first parties, I mean the companies that initially collect the data. So how does this third party company I've never heard of, that's a data broker actually get all of this location data that it compiles and sells it probably, and many of them do pays mobile app developers, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a month to transfer all their users' location data, which the broker then compiles. So um, I say this to get to your question because it's not a clear line situation where we have these third-party data brokers over here that magic up data from somewhere in the soil and then you know the rest of the industries over here. And so I think with ad tech, there are data brokers that do advertising functions. Um, I, I've written, for instance, about a data broker in 2015 that was uh, secretly tracking women visiting Planned Parenthood facilities in multiple states and then selling access to those devices for advertising to anti-abortion groups, So, um, which is horrible, very manipulative, very harmful, uh, very invasive, but speaks to that, that point of, okay, well, you know, they're a broker, but maybe they'll also do advertising or maybe there's a company whose primary business is advertising, right? They're an ad tech firm. They're not giving away their data because that's their secret sauce, but maybe technically they're performing a similar function to some of these data brokers where they're going to a mobile app and grabbing data from and about users, or they're going to a retailer and buying information about customers so that they can, um, can use the data. So I don't know if that, if that answers your question, but I guess that would be my response is it's, it's, it's a great question because it's such a, it's such a blurry set of lines across these different, different spaces. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think what I'm hearing is that because of the opacity of the industry and because data brokers can wear multiple hats, whether they're third party or first party, they can play different roles within the ecosystem and sometimes multiple roles at the same time. Uh, it brings up sort of interesting questions for regulation that don't quite cleanly fit in the same lines as traditional, you know, processor controller language that we see in a lot of uh, data protection regulations. So I want to now get into more of the regulation side of things. And on this show, we have a lot of conversations about the FTC and their sort of emerging role as a privacy regulator and sort of the dominant privacy regulator of the US. But even back in 
2014 um, and a little earlier, the FTC was starting to think about these data brokerage questions. So how has the FTC and the government, in the U.S. at least, more broadly, historically thought about data broker issues? Yeah. So as you said, I mean, the FTC does a lot, does a lot of stuff generally, right? I mean, text just one subset and uh, 1998 was the, yeah, GeoCities was the FTC's first privacy case. So like you said, even for decades, they've been doing privacy, but around, you know, 2010, 2012, the FTC within that privacy activity started paying more attention to data brokers and, uh, you know, by and large, uh, because there aren't too many federal privacy rules on the books and some of them, the FTC doesn't enforce, right? Like HIPAA, um, you know, they draw when they do these actions on their authority to enforce against unfair, deceptive business practices. And so when you look at, some of those early enforcement actions against data brokers, deceptiveness was a big component. It was things like saying, okay, you are, for instance, a people search website, one of these white pages websites. I always say to people, you type in a name, you get a maybe sketchy looking pop-up to run a background check on someone, right? Those are data brokers and their, their business in particular is selling these profiles on people. And so some of the FTC's early cases were about that. There were companies who were providing those people lookup services to people doing credit reporting related activities, which means you're regulated under the federal law FICRA, the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And so um, it was things like that where the company would not say they were FICRA covered or would not behave as a FICRA covered entity, but the FTC said, well, actually you're doing the same exact kind of thing. Um, but Really, uh, so so they've been doing work on this, um, you know, for years, and it's really ratcheted up recently, which I know we'll we'll get more into. But one of the big uh, shift points was in 2014. The FTC released a major study on the data broker industry, which um, up until that point there hadn't really been too many big studies on the topic. There are a few fantastic, um, you know, privacy scholars who like Pam Dixon, who have written on this for years, and you should go read all of their work um, and, and EFF and some others, but the government really hadn't done big studies on this. So uh, there was a 2013 Senate Commerce Committee report, and then there was the 2014 FTC report. And these were kind of the two big studies on data brokers. So um, that was really, I think, a landmark point where the, uh, the commission said, we're going to focus more on this space Compared to other parts of the data industry, this is a space particularly prone to harm consumers. Um, and, you know, so that tapered off for a bit, which we can get more into, but especially recently, that same energy and, and expertise on the topic has really been brought forward by the FTC folks who are doing all kinds of recent uh, privacy and data broker enforcement actions. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into that. Before we do, I want to keep on the historical note and shift to the state level. So some states, such as California, Vermont, have had these data broker registries for a while. These aren't per se new. What are those? What do they do? And do they work? 
<laughs> the last one's my favorite uh, part of the question. Um, so, yes, as you said, Vermont and California are the two states in the U.S. that for several years now have had public registries of data of, of data brokers. What does this actually mean? Well, they passed these very narrow laws that said if you meet the definition of a third-party data broker laid out in the law with a bunch of exceptions, then you have to annually submit some registration information to the state, which includes things like your name, your business address, your mailing address, uh, and depending, sometimes information about, like in California, how people could request to have their data deleted, for instance, from your, your systems. Uh, the reason I stress that they're narrow is because, one, uh, they're only focused on third parties. So if you're a first-party company selling your own customers' or users' data, you are not a data broker under these um, laws. And the second piece is there are carve-outs. So in Vermont, for instance, there's an e-commerce exception. So if you're an e-commerce company, um, just not covered. And we can wonder about who may or may not have wanted that in there. But uh, but the point is that that the, that's what it is, right? There's this registry and it's, it's you know, the intent. And, and, right, I mean, I know some of the folks who worked on this stuff, like that was a huge effort in and of itself. Um, and I think this is a perfect case where we can say, two things at once. One is that a ton of really deep expertise and a ton of hard work and organizing went into passing the law. And at the same time, we can recognize that these laws are very, very weak and what we were able to pass um, doesn't really do anything. And this is a great segue into California's recent uh, uh, law, the Delete Act, which is off of the registry, creating a centralized way for people to opt out from these data brokers selling their information. Um, that itself has carve outs. We can maybe get more into that, but um, but it's I think California's done a good job because they've at least said, okay, well, you know, posting online that some of these companies exist and might be collecting your data is not really that helpful if people don't have the right to stop it and an easy way to do so, whether that's, you know, a single form or anything that's not clicking through hundreds of different web pages and filling out all these different forms, um, which at that point you might as well ask people to read terms of service, which nobody does either. So, um, so that's sort of the situation at the state level. And there are some other bills that have been debated, but um, right now California leads the pack on data broker specific state regulation. So let's dig into that a little bit more. And I want to hear from you, sort of how did this California Delete Act develop and what's its sort of interaction with the existing Californian registry? And do you think other states are, you know, might follow suit or, you know, other developments on the state law side? Yeah, so the California Delete Act um, is the kind of thing that that many folks have called for for years, and there are a lot of state organizations that worked on it. There are um, a lot of, of course, privacy organizations based in California, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that have been writing about this, and then a bunch of bunch of individuals. A few of the state legislators are very active on this. Uh, someone by the name of Tom Kemp in industry has been a big 
champion of the California Delete Act as well, and has written a bunch of, of uh, you know, articles and things about it to, to sort of advocate for it. So, so, you know, credit to all those folks who uh, put in their time. I think the reason that this approach is so attractive to have a centralized registry to allow people to opt out through a single click is in part because the registry exists, right? So as, as we just said, because this list of companies is sitting there, it's somewhat of a logical follow-on to say, okay, well, now let's just make a one-stop shop to actually opt out. Um, because there have been very few studies of the registry, but uh, our team, my team at Duke, uh, has looked at these registries. Some of the information is outdated. Every year you get companies who don't register. Consumer Reports also did a study in California a few years ago um, and found mixed results. Some people would request opt-outs and the broker would would do it. Others would uh, you know, go on a website and find uh, illegal opt-out practices. Like in California, you cannot uh, make someone create an account on your company's website to delete your data from that company. And yet some brokers do that. So, so that's part of it, right? Is, okay, we have this registry in California. Let's give consumers a better way to opt out. Um, but I think the larger reason that this is so attractive to legislators and to a lot of privacy uh, community folks is that our U.S. privacy system is so based on this consent idea. And, and I think um, you exactly got at this already in talking about processors and controllers and this very sort of contractual way that we conceptualize how privacy works. Um, and I say this to say people like and companies like that it's not by default that your data is not collected. It's not by default that your data is not sold. Um, instead, it does happen by default. And then if you would like to choose to opt out, you can go do so through the portal. So again, having that obviously is better than not having it and letting people go in and opt out is a good thing. But, um, you know, I think if this was a, a bill, as others I've worked on have been that said, we're going to prohibit some of this outright, it would not have been passed or passed as quickly in the same way as this, this version of the Delete Act did. So I want to shift us back to the federal level. And as you mentioned, there has been sort of an uptick in activity lately, both from the FTC and other federal agencies to address the data broker debate. Uh, So what are some of those updates? Yeah, so last, I mean, there have been a bunch of cases and other things, uh, among others, in significant actions about a year ago now, actually, last, uh, which is crazy, it's somehow already a year later, but uh, October of 2022, the FTC had um, a request for information about data surveillance and commercialization and security. And so uh, that led to a wave of public submissions from different organizations and groups and, and people about a bunch of different things. And so because that's such a wide ranging topic, there were privacy and data minimization and data breach and AI and all kinds of different things. Data brokers was a piece of that. Um, But this past year, we've seen the FTC uh, do a number of cases that, um, that have closed out that relate to data brokerage. So those include things like GoodRx, the, the, uh, 
prescription drug provider that was sharing consumers' health information with third parties. Uh, this includes uh, Premom, which was a fertility tracking app that was widely sharing users' very, very intimate health data related to menstrual cycles and pregnancy status and things like that with third parties, sharing location data with third parties. So they've done a bunch of stuff that's been wrapped up. And then the one action that's been in flux has been around Kachava, which is a location data broker. So again, as I mentioned, different data brokers do different things. Their whole business is selling location data. And so in August of 2022, the FTC sued them and said that selling location data, which they alleged could be used to, and I will give my personal opinion, completely realistic and feasible, right? Can be used to track people visiting sensitive places, whether that's a place of worship, right? If you're going to a mosque or a church or whatever, it could be a health clinic, it could be a gay bar, it could be any number of things. Um, is unfair to consumers. So saying, okay, we have the authority to police unfair practices. This data broker, Kachava, is selling location data that is unfair and could harm consumers. Uh, that has not gone as well as some may have hoped. Uh, they So they sued, and then the lawsuit was thrown out, and uh, the judge gave the FTC a chance to refile and so they modified the argument a little bit and refiled. And now uh, Kachava uh, is pursuing sanction against the FTC lawyers who, uh, who led that case and so on. Um, but the point is, so the FTC has been doing a lot of great stuff. One of the challenges with this has been, which I think is as a non-lawyer who works on and writes about the law, is a bad thing. But our legal system... Uh, you know, really wants privacy harm, quote unquote, to be a concrete thing that's already happened. And so saying there's a ton of computer science research that shows that you can de-anonymize this location data, you can track people, you can identify sensitive characteristics about these people, whether that's sexual orientation, religion, financial health status, that's not sufficient to constitute harm. So that was really the core issue in that case. Um, but so the FTC has been doing a lot and Sam Levine, who uh, heads the enforcement um, uh, uh, division and consumer protection there, just gave a speech uh, as well about data brokers and harm. Uh, and the other main agency, I'm going on far too long here, so I'll add one more sentence. The, the main agency uh, that I would add to this, of course, is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, which uh, enforces, does enforcement of consumer reporting uh, agencies and some of them are data brokers. They're doing a rulemaking to expand that to cover other companies um, that are selling people's credit data. So, two two sort of really uh, active and really knowledgeable agencies on this topic. Thank you for that overview. That's extremely useful. I think, and you weren't going on for too long. I was going to ask you about the CFPB, anyways. <laughs> uh, so that that was great. So to kind of ground our conversation, a lot of our listeners are people who are in this space, you know, tech policy professionals, lawyers, technologists, et cetera, people who love the sort of nerdy mechanics of regulation. But I want to 
ground us in the sense of thinking about the actual stakes involved. And you've mentioned them sort of throughout, but from your lens, what are the sort of stakes of potential harm, as you were saying, is sort of salient within the Kachava case for the, the sort of functioning of this industry? What does it mean for regular people like you and me? That is sometimes the most important question, right? I mean, I know we were, we were talking about this over email too, right? The harms and, and all this stuff. And I think to editorialize for a second, even when we, um, you know, when I first had a conversation with some of the other faculty at the, at the Duke Policy School about data brokers a couple of years ago and, you know, what, what project would you want to do? And I kind of just, I, I sort of pitched doing one on data brokers. Um, one of our things from the outset has been, you know, we love, I'm a nerd for this stuff, right? I love getting in the legal weeds, the technical weeds, the philosophical stuff about privacy and Foucault and whatever. But sometimes I think a shortcoming of academic work on privacy is not articulating harm very well. Um, and so anyway, so that's, that's something we try and really highlight in our project. So just to name some examples, we've looked at uh, the... Uh, long-standing issue of stalking and gendered violence associated with data brokers. So we mentioned these people search data brokers, these white pages, websites, you can go online and for five, 10, 20, $40 purchase someone's home address, contact information. It's linked to their family for decades. Uh, abusive individuals have bought this, used it to stalk, hunt down, intimidate, assault, even murder, uh, other people. Uh, and so, of course, as with all stalking and gendered violence, this falls predominantly on women as well as LGBTQ plus people. And so that's one thing we look at is, okay, you know, the act of digitizing and aggregating all of this together, selling it online. Sure, somebody could look up a random coworker and find out they had a DUI or something. And that's that's still a separate privacy conversation. But Lots of abusive individuals continually buy this data. And if you talk to any of the national, uh, you know, we do some some work with these kinds of groups. If you talk to any of the national networks or local shelters for survivors of gendered violence or anything, this is a persistent issue, right? Someone might uproot, try to move to a new state, let's say, and start a new phase of their life. And these data brokers will automatically update and post this person's home address. So that's one example Scams is another, uh, you know, people all the time are targeted for all kinds of scams. We all are. These calls and these emails are very annoying. Uh, and how do the scammers get your phone number? Well, sometimes they're just guessing. Sometimes it's a data breach and sometimes they'll buy from a data broker. Uh, and so one thing we've looked at is data brokers that compile and sell lists of people who are elderly, lists of people with Alzheimer's and dementia, and in some cases have sold that data to criminal scammers. Uh, and so, for instance, the Justice Department charged three different data brokers in the last couple of years for doing this for about a decade each, which is really kind of a crazy amount of time. They sold this data to criminal scammers. One, one large uh, data broker sold over 30 million Americans that fit in this vulnerable category data over a decade to these criminals who then stole millions of dollars from these people. They'd send them bogus astrology, mailers, fake lottery, 
win pamphlets and all kinds of, of stuff like that. Um, and so, but the data brokers did this knowingly, which is one of the most disturbing pieces of these charges. And you can see sort of the internal stuff the DOJ gathered about that. But at the end of the day, uh, as we said, the sale of the data is the business model. And so uh, for those companies, and so they profited off the sale, they kept selling to these, these scammers. Um, yeah. So, you know, so stalking, scamming, and then we also look at uh, a range of other kinds of privacy harms. So we look at national security risks, right? People go on endlessly about TikTok, right? Uh, and this is um, something, unfortunately, I've been writing about in great detail for four years now. Um, but but there's all this data you can go buy about people online. And we actually have a major study coming out in a couple of weeks where we bought a bunch of data through our university ethics process on military service members. Very cheap sometimes no vetting. And so we look at that risk. We look at policing, right? The fact that lots of law enforcement agencies will buy data about people from data brokers and in doing so not need a warrant or other legal process, which is a massive uh, invasion of privacy, in my opinion, and fundamentally anti-democratic um, to not have oversight of, of law enforcement. Uh, and then, you know, then we look at other privacy things, like we said, the, the risks post Dobbs in the United States, post to pregnant people and women and the ways that reproductive health data is really, really, really sensitive and careful and dangerous to collect right now. Um, we, I worked with uh, the Washington Post on their investigation into the outing of a gay priest, a closet of gay priest through grinder location data. So a um, bunch of different things, but like you said, it's, and I really do appreciate that question because it, it, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to understand what the harm is. But like you said, once you really dig in, you start realizing that, you know, whether it's scamming or stalking are really tangible things that affect everyone. And especially as with all surveillance, fall the hardest on, on marginalized people. Yeah. And something that's salient to me about the, the points you made is in the legal side of things, at least definitely in law firms, Privacy and cybersecurity as legal practices sort of go hand in hand, but for a long time, the notions of privacy versus safety have been really at odds. And even in thinking of you know, the examples you pointed out of threat actors or threatening actors uh, using data to commit harms, you know, one solution that could come to mind for, you know, data brokers who want to avoid, you know, even if profit is the top priority, if, who want to avoid these sorts of negative consequences for vulnerable communities and members of society, collecting more data about who is requesting the data that these brokers are collecting. Uh, but that in and of itself is also privacy invasive in a different way. Are there any solutions that sort of come to mind of how to deal with these tensions in conceptualizing how we could actually address these potential harms? It's a, it's a good question. I think that controls on for instance, vetting who your prospective customer is. And I say prospective because the time to vet a customer is not 
you know, if you're an arms company after you've given them weapons, it's before, you know, you even get on the phone with them. Right. So the perspective controls would be great. Uh, we found in our research that it's, and again, I say we've bought through our research ethics process, a bunch of data from a bunch of different brokers, um, which is just interesting. Right. And we learn a lot by doing that. And, and, you know, not every organization, plenty of others do great work on it, but not every organization can do that because they're maybe not a university with that process. So we, it's been really inconsistent. Some will not want to have a conversation about selling location data on particular facilities period without lots of questions about who you are and your company and looking your company up and things like that. Um, some of that may be easy to circumvent, but that's, that's, you know, there's at least something there. Others, we've had literally nothing. We've had no vetting of who we are, uh, or in one case in our report coming out, we had a broker, uh, which I've referenced uh, publicly before, we had a broker uh, offer to uh, let us circumvent their background check process if we paid in a different way. So there's things like that where having that vetting, I think, would be really good, um, but we can't have that alone, right? Self-regulation is a complete myth, I think every <laughs> major uh, tech industry question in the last few decades alone has shown that, let alone every other analogy from energy and everything else, right? So I think the solution is both those controls at the company to do vetting and you know, regulation. In the scheme of things, yes, you might have a broker collecting more information about a buyer to sell to them, which as you said, is sort of ironic that if the goal is to prevent harm, there's a bit more of privacy invasion going on. But a lot of these data brokers have a lot of that kind of information anyway. And, you know, if, if you constructed it such that there's a lot of controls from the government on what can and cannot be sold in terms of law and regulation, and then you had some additional business controls in some areas where sale was still permitted, you know, I think at that point, that's an, that could be an acceptable kind of cost to having those um, those controls. But I'll just say something should not be sold, period. I think the sale of health data should be illegal. Um, HIPAA already has mechanisms for transferring data for research. There's already mechanisms for if I'm a dentist and I buy the dentist down the street, I get their patient list. So, you know, in some areas, I don't think we should even be talking about controls. It should just be, it should just be prohibition uh, completely because the harm is too, is too severe. So to dig into another potential sphere of implications. I want to ask about the role that data brokers play in political advertising and sort of the election process at large. I think now we're sort of in a lull of this, but I predict it might come back into the foray as we get closer to 2024. Uh, but of course, misinformation, political advertising uh, has been especially salient in the American context for the past almost decade or so. Uh, so how does that sort of function from your point of view? Mm. Yeah, I'm laughing on the video here because it's a huge market, right? Um, you know, if we're talking about major who actually buys this data right which maybe we should talk a little bit more about but um right you know that includes insurance companies are huge buyers of data from data brokers health insurance companies buy so much data about us that we don't disclose to them to 
profile people and things. Law enforcement buys a lot. Political campaigns is another one. Um, and, you know, you hit the nail on the head with the fact that this has been this this topic of sort of political targeting and data we've obviously all seen in the news for years now around whether it was the uh, first time, you know, 2007, 2008 Obama campaign and all the reporting about how innovative they were on tech, quote unquote, or looking at Cambridge Analytica and Facebook in 2016 or, or you know, and, and so on. Um, but political campaigns spend a lot on this information and they want to be able to get massive pools of data and then have people do analysis on it to, excuse me, identify whatever it is that they want to identify. So uh, there's been reporting, for example, about how the Trump campaign um, in 2016 identified, bought a bunch of data and had like massive data sets on hundreds of millions of Americans, um, even separate from the, the Cambridge stuff, and was identifying groups of black voters that they wanted to stay home on election day. And so can we identify which black voters we don't want to exercise their right to vote? Um, you know, for instance, all the way to um, there have been a num- some of these have been in the press. I just anecdotally know of a number of other cases where, um, you know, people of a different political stripe might actually agree with the kinds of, of things that were going on in terms of mobilizing voters or reaching out to women who care about certain issues. But again, all occurs through this targeting. So I would, I would encourage, um, folks as well, open secrets did, uh, which does a lot of this kind of, you know, money and politics reporting, did an article a couple of years ago about this issue. And it was quite interesting to look at, um, you know, how much politicians spend on political data and um, things like that. And so I had, you know, I joke it'd be interesting to compare that against how people vote on privacy legislation. But um, but that would also presume that all of these members even have any awareness of what's going on with data in their campaigns, which some members absolutely who were super knowledgeable about this and some others probably have zero clue that this is going on. So that might be a, a moot uh, point. But uh, yeah, it's it's a huge, like you said, it's it's an important thing to note just because their campaigns are huge buyers of this data. And to dig into that question of the buyers, right, of large pools of data, is there a particular type of buyer, you mentioned a couple of examples of them, but is there a particular type that sort of stands out in your mind as the most concerning on a wide scale or poses the most risk for consumer harm? It's a hard question. I think, you know, a couple years ago, I would have said law enforcement. And I would still say law enforcement, but but I would have said law enforcement and said that the fact that federal and state and sometimes local law enforcement and policing organizations buy massive amounts of data. I mean, location data, real near real time, updated every 10 minutes on millions of people. No warrant, no public disclosure, no oversight, right? That's a massive invasion of privacy. And again, I think that's fundamentally... And this is, and we work with Democrats and Republicans on these issues. And, you know, for all the other things going on, data brokers has been a consistently bipartisan topic. Um, I, I say this, 
you know, literally is maybe an overused word these days, but, but, but literally I have yet to do, we've yet to do a presentation to a member of Congress of either party on any part of the political spectrum about this topic who has not, you know, been concerned about something within it. So I, I would say, you know, I would still say law enforcement, but, um, but I've learned much more now about insurance uses of this data, which I think are also concerning. Um, sometimes this is individually identified data, like with health insurance companies. I think that's really invasive. Again, anytime we're talking about health, um, I think people just have a core assumption in this country that if you talk to your doctor, that that's confidential, which is true, generally speaking, but that doesn't apply in lots of other contexts and people are, are you know, selling your data elsewhere. Um, but even in insurance cases where it's not individually identified data, where it's metadata about neighborhoods and things, just learning more about that has made me more concerned about macro impacts, right? Whether that's uh, redlining, whether that's, um, you know, quote unquote, predictive policing, which ends up, uh, you know, reifying a lot of racist, uh, you know, s- structures around how crime is defined and enforced. Um, and yeah, and certainly, you know, another abuse of individuals, right? I mean, and another one that we've been thinking about recently is foreign actors, right? Could a foreign actor set up uh, a shell company to do this kind of thing? And, you know, I have, I do quite a bit of national security work. I think that's plausible. Uh, other people far deeper in those things uh, that we've talked to think this is also quite plausible. Again, not, not that it's necessarily happening everywhere, but that it's, um, it's plausible. So, I guess that's a cop out because I named about six of them, um, but uh, but certainly lots of areas of of concern. And even there was a recent White House event uh, last month that I, I spoke at about this, and folks there were mentioning uh, their firsthand experiences with tenant screening and housing and the housing affordable housing crisis, and you know particularly uh, black women having lots of errors and other issues with these background check data brokers and how that contributes to um, homelessness and, and things like that. So, yeah, you know, then, then there's more innocuous things, people buying lists of 20 year olds in DC that drink coffee, which just might be everybody. But uh, you know, it's, there's, there's also a lot of, a lot of harm that, that goes on as well. Right. Well, I think that that is a really useful overview of sort of potential priorities for, focusing on where harm could occur because I think the most you know, broad application is marketing and advertising as we've discussed. But, uh, but it's interesting to hear about all the different ways that this data could be used or of interest to, to different actors. And to sort of segue off the foreign actors point, I do quickly want to touch on sort of the international arena because we've focused largely on U.S. regulation and sort of U.S. companies and the sort of domestic uh, ecosystem. But to what extent are international uh, regulators and other, you know, stakeholders engaging in data broker debates and conversations? It is coming up more and more. Uh, earlier this Late spring, summer, I was in Europe for a couple of weeks with a colleague doing a bunch of meetings and briefings in multiple countries there, including in um, 
you know, in Brussels there, uh, where the, the sort of center of, of all this en- enforcement, not a country, obviously, but, you know, where the center of all this enforcement is. And uh, yeah, so, but it's interesting, right? So with, with the GDPR, right, in Europe, I've had very mixed responses from different people who literally are responsible for this enforcement in the block or different areas or who work on this, ranging from no way GDPR fixes everything. This is an American problem, um, which, uh, you know, we know to not quite be the case. So that's kind of interesting, you know, in the middle, like, oh, this is absolutely a problem. This is a gap ranging to this is actually an interesting research question. And so actually one thing we're thinking about is, you know, so if anyone wants to email me, if they listen to this and they're in Europe, like, are there a a good group in Europe we should partner with? um, We being, being, being Duke to look at this question. Um, And so, yeah, so, you know, for instance, in the UK, the information commissioner's office did a report a couple years ago where they looked at the major credit reporting agencies there, which are the same as ours, Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. And they found that, which I don't find remotely surprising, but they found that these companies were using uh, marketing uh, or credit data and, and cover data for marketing and like all these other things that were going on that were not within the scope of what they were supposed to be using it for. So just that example, I think speaks to the fact that no regulation is going to fix everything immediately. That's actually a ridiculous false bar to set for any regulation. And, you know, the tech, um, as is constantly discussed on this show, right? Like the tech is so fast evolving and everything, but, uh, I think that's, you know, Europe is one place to think about how this fits, India is another one. Um, you know, I, I uh, had a talk at the Indian Institute of Technology uh, last year, two years ago on this, and also done a bunch of unrelated uh, privacy stuff in India. And it was interesting because one of the uh, law professors there made a comment where he said, we have the same problem you do in conceptual approach. He said, our policymakers get together and they talk about data and big tech and Facebook. He said, and they, they do that and that's great, but they focus on the first party relationship only. They think about you log on to Facebook, Facebook gets your data and that's it. And he said, and we lose the whole rest of the ecosystem, whether that's ad tech, whether that's, you know, software development kits in the apps, whether that's so, um, yeah, so so there aren't too many other countries that have data broker specific regulations or anything, but I think you know as more countries are concerned about what's the most risky kind of activity and where do we want to tamp down while also fostering innovation, um, you know, this is one space that keeps coming up. I could continue to ask a billion questions. This is a huge, very active area at the moment. But to wrap us up, given all the activity and sort of buzz around this space right now, what would you say if you had to read the tea leaves, as is my favorite phrase on this show, uh, what do you think is sort of the future of this and what is going to happen next or come out of all the sort of attention and focus on data brokers these days? So I think at least three things. So one is the 
CFPB is doing rulemaking on data brokers. They've announced this, this is going to happen. And so the, 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 you know, detail around that is right. That currently there's a certain way that a consumer reporting agency is classified. And the general point that the CFPB is making is saying, well, there are companies that aren't covered under the current definition that are functionally kind of the same thing as the covered entities, right? So like if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, right, it's a duck. So we're going to, we're going to update based on the tech advances that have happened in the year since I think it was passed decades ago, right? So let's change, let's update the definition. It's the same legal authority. This is a clear authority, but we're just going to update the scope. So that I think is very firm legal ground to stand on because Again, if a lot of these companies who might not be considered regulated under FICRA right now are doing credit reporting type services and stuff, that's that's essentially the same thing. So that just makes sense to cover it. The second uh, the, and third thing, which I'll mention, are the FTC. The first, uh, you know, FTC thing is, uh, as mentioned, a continued focus on deceptive practices. Are there data brokers or other companies that are selling or sharing data? in ways that are not made clear to users. That's been a consistent in the last uh, many years, but even eight months, eight, nine months with the FTC of hitting companies with that because that's a deceptive trade practice. The The third and final thing is related to Kachaba, which is there's an interest in, as we said, identifying areas of harm and saying this is an unfair practice to the consumer, which as a general matter, it absolutely is. It checks everything on the three-pronged FTC unfairness test. Like it, to me, it just it's obvious. But again, legally, you have to have something where you can show a malicious company did follow a person to a place of worship or, or this and such thing. And so um, while there are those examples of harm, you're not always going to have those examples of harm on paper that have already happened and are publicly known and happen with the specific broker and the specific type of data we're concerned about. So um, I think that will be a challenge for them going forward. And the fact that the Kachava lawsuit has not been successful, while I fully applaud the FTC for filing it and think, again, that we need a change in our legal approach, that that's not considered an evidence of harm, quote unquote, that, for instance, a woman who is seeking reproductive care could be jailed. Like, how is like that's that is harm. Um, but but so but I think that challenge with the lawsuit, uh, you know, will sort of spill over into probably filing less of those because it's it at that point becomes a waste of time if um, you know you can't clearly prove harm. So. Well, thank you so much, Justin. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, 
Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.